podcast where the worlds of work, comedy and well-being collide. The podcast where the life-changing stuff happens. I'm your host Callie Beaton and this episode is called Don't Drop the Baby and today's theme is babies. But first can I ask you a favour? It is not to give me a baby, it is to see if you would mind liking and subscribing. We love the fact that our numbers are growing and growing and that we have more and more lovely listeners like you. So why not hit pause if you haven't already done it and you can subscribe now. It's all free and we just love having you here with us. So that is it, grovelling over, let's get back to babies. Harking back to my MTV days, the MTV US show 16 and Pregnant caused a 4.3% reduction in teen births in the US. Elsewhere in the world, German babies cry with a different accent to French babies, and babies can babble in sign language. Neuroscientists increasingly think that newborn babies are synesthetic, meaning they can taste textures, hear colours or smell sounds. Taste textures, hear colours or smell sounds. That's blown my non-baby brain. According to the ancient Greek physician Soranus, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, it's spelled S-O-R-A-N-U-S, let's call him Soranus. So according to the ancient Greek physician Soranus, if a woman wants to avoid getting pregnant, she should hold her breath during sex and then squat and sneeze right after. But I can tell you for sure that as a menopausal woman, if I try even two of those things at once, it won't end well. Oh, good, yes. I think I was in the other, I clicked on the other link. That's today's guest, Diona Doherty who was 30 weeks pregnant at the time of recording. Now here's some baby animal trivia, because we love little baby animals. Baby opossums, not possums, but opossums, my son has one of these, are so small at birth that you could fit 20 of them in a teaspoon. And little tiny baby turtles call to each other while they're still in their shells so that they can all hatch at the same time. In 2021, there was a baby boom in the feral goat population of Langdudno because they didn't get their usual contraceptive injection because of the pandemic. And finally, bats give birth upside down and they catch their babies in their wings. You need a dyspraxic pregnant bat like a hole in the head then. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I was just in another room in the middle of nowhere in Zoomland. Derry-born Diona Doherty is an actor, writer and comedian who is married to fellow comic Sean Hegarty. They have between them four kids, with a fifth imminently on the way. But there's a lot more to Diona than babies. A relative newcomer to stand-up, she was shortlisted for the final of the BBC New Comedy Award in 2021 and has since guested on Radio 4's The News Quiz and is a regular panellist on The Blame Game. She led an episode of Derry Girls as Katia. She played one of the leads in the BBC improvised comedy Soft Border Patrol. And she's the recurring character Grunya in BBC's Give My Head Peace. Her debut play, Bridesmaids of Northern Ireland, was a sellout hit and is coming to the UK this summer as Bridesmaids of Britain. And there's a link to where you can buy tickets for that in the show notes. And she also has a podcast, Remember When, where each week she welcomes a celebrity guest to discuss a moment from pop culture history. Just a quick disclaimer before we get into it about sound quality. It's not always the best in this episode. and We've done our best to correct it, thanks to the genius of producer Mike and the equal genius of Cookie. Um, And rest assured that in every other sense, the quality of this episode is superb. It's entirely listenable too, but we do normally have top technical standards and we didn't manage it this week. My bad. Diona and I talked about pregnancy, acting, writing, dating comedians, sexism, IVF, honeymoons, pop culture and cruises. But I started by asking her how the pregnancy was going. Hello, Diona. Hello, Callie. 
I'm 30 weeks pregnant, so I feel like I'm just consistently ill with different things every week. So no, <laughs> I feel like I'm just always like in the past hour, I've seemed to have developed a sore throat and a cold. Um, and I'm sure in a few hours time, I'll have developed something completely different as well. It's just it's like a lucky dip. Was this is this your it's your second baby, right? I know you've got stepkids, but your second baby that you will have birthed. Yes, that's it. Yeah, I've got three that I half reared but didn't birth, and then I've got this is my second child that I own. Do you like um? Do you just like chaos? Do you just like shit? Let's just get loads more humans in the house and make life a bit more complicated. Absolutely hate it. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I don't know why. Like even my husband as well. Like growing up, he was like, "I don't want kids." Like he never wanted kids, and like it seems like all he's done has have kids. Yeah, so, so he's, he's a dad. Of he knows fun. what he wants. And this is Sean Hegarty, who lots of people listening will know. So he's got, and his oldest one must be like kind of pretty much an adult by now. But his, his eldest, my eldest stepson's nineteen in that university, and then we have one on the way. So there'll literally be two decades difference between the eldest and youngest child. In my house and it's funny because I feel like I'm only 20 so I'm like I don't understand how that works. You also look like you're only 20 unless you're in an extremely flatteringly lit area. No I look I look very swollen and ill. <laughs> well I've seen you on the blame game right. looking beautiful but to be fair when was the last are you in a hiatus at the moment is the blame game filming? Uh, the blame game isn't on at the minute, no. I'm definitely still working away, doing lots of other things, but the blame game won't be back until October time, which would be great for me to have a few months uh, after the baby before I have to be on TV again. But uh, no, the, actually, <clears throat> after I had my daughter, I was on the blame game eight days later. Wow. And that so was your first, your first I was going to say, actual child. So obviously your stepkids are actual children. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait, yeah. take me through that. Take me through um, how you would, as a person uh -huh. who's had kids, I think eight days in, crying, no bra, teeth dirty, hadn't washed my hair since before the birth. That's where I'm going with how I was feeling. Well, she didn't have any teeth for them to be dirty, but my teeth were definitely dirty. Yeah, mine were dirty. Yeah, though the baby didn't have. Yeah. I didn't give birth to a sort of a sixty-five-year-old. Yeah, just me, <laughs> just my dirty teeth. The dirty baby yeah. and my dirty teeth. Yeah, her dirty bum and my dirty teeth. Um, no, it was it was brutal. I had COVID as well. I was really sick when I gave birth, and although I was past this sort of incubation, like stay-at-home period, so I technically could go out. I was still really sick. So it's on the blame game, like holding it together. And my husband was in the green room with our eight-year-old. Eight she was, she'd, she'd loads of teeth. <laughs> our eight-day-old baby. And I could just hear her crying constantly, but she wasn't crying. Do you know that phantom crying you get when you've just had your first baby? Like you can't have a shower without hearing them scream in the distance, even though they're not, they're totally fine. Uh, that's all I could think about during the recording. And... I don't know. I don't know how I did on that episode. I, I it was an absolute blur. But yeah, eight days later was, and she didn't sleep. She never slept at that stage. So neither did I. Because anyone who hasn't seen that, lots of people who listen to this will have seen the blame game. I've guested on it, and I know Neil well. Hello, podcast penance. It's producer Mike here with another handy clarification. So the Neil they're referring to is not, in fact, Neil Diamond, as I thought it was, but friend of the pod, Neil Delmer. I met Neil doing yeah. The Unbelievable Truth. We were both panellists on that. And I didn't know who he was. And I was like, you are a panel ninja. How did you do that? And then I found out that he did the blame game. And it is like boot camp for being on a panel show, isn't it? It's like incredible, high standard, quick. And you're the first permanent female panellist. Yeah, that's right. It's been on in for like, I think, 15, 16 years. And it's always been the four guys on it plus whatever guest comes on there's, there's usually a female guest as well it's not unusual for there to be a woman there but as regards a panelist I was the first ever new panelist as well it was the same lineup from the beginning um and yeah there was an opening and they asked me to join and I was like are you sure and as you say like Neil is a, a, a panel show ninja like he's so quick and so and he has something to say on everything because he's so smart and so well educated on top of being so funny so he has something to say on everything and 
you know, no matter what topic comes up, he has a bet or a joke and he's so seasoned. So I feel like I'm still really finding my feet in there a few years, but I have a completely different approach. I'm, I'm not I'm not very political and a lot of the humor on the show is sort of uh, satirical politics and stuff. And, and I'm and I'm just like hoping there's a show, there's a news story that week about a herd of cows just bombarding a, a, a Tesco's or something so I can make jokes about that <laughs> and do you find because I did um I did so much prep for that show also because at least for you the backdrop is quite natural you understand some of the stuff that's a given growing up you know you're a dairy girl growing up where you've grown yep. up you get you get some of it right like there's some sort of in in ingrown political awareness that's really easy for me flying over from London to Belfast to completely screw up on but they are so you feel like um I don't know how you found being a how you're finding being a woman on I know we have this all the time on panels where we're quite often in the minority but I always say to people just make the edit just get your voice heard don't worry about being the funniest voice in the room just be a voice but how how are you I know you've done loads of other things on telly so you're not a new face but how are you finding that being with sort of mainly men and very seasoned forthright men and do you know what? That's great advice because so, a lot of the times in the earlier shows, I would have second guessed to myself before speaking, and I would have been like, "Oh, I don't think that's as funny as what you know such and such said a few minutes ago." So I'll maybe not say it, and 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 then I would I would literally edit myself at live as I so I wouldn't say half of the things that I had prepared. And as time went by, I was thinking, no, actually, I just need to say I need to have the confidence to say all the things that I have prepared to say that I clearly thought was funny funny during the week when I was writing it and not be intimidated, not in a room in a panel full of men, you know, just say what I was going to say. So it can be tricky. And although we love to think that like things are really different now, they're, they're, they're better, but they're, they're not, you know, you do still feel like you're the woman in the room, you know, and now in saying that, the guys like Colin Murphy, Tim McGarry and Neil Delamere, who are on the panel as well with me, have been class. Like they've been so good. They've been mentors, really, and sort of steer me in the right direction of the formula that works for the show. And um, they would team me up with bits and they're, they're great. So I've never felt that from them specifically. But you do feel that in general in comedy, I suppose. Like it takes an extra set of balls for a woman to say something, I think, than it does for a man because it's a harder room you still hear female comics and panelists saying that they feel if they fuck it up they're fucking it up for all women so like we'll say something stupid on a panel show and people will be like women shouldn't be on panel shows whereas a guy will say something no one's going why are all men not funny so we're sort of like taking the whole of our gender with us on this journey which is quite the pressure especially when you've got an eight day old baby yeah i yeah i was once um tweeted after one of the and someone said, oh, I've lost all respect for you. You know, you used to use the F word gratuitously. You said fuck a couple of times and nobody, it wasn't, it wasn't necessary. And Neil Delamere tweeted them saying, actually, in that bit that you're talking about, all of us said the F word gratuitously. There's not a lot of heavy swearing on, on the blame game. It's BBC Northern Ireland, so they like to steer away from it. Um, but there there are some that slip through the net because they're worth it for the joke or the bit. And this guy had tweeted me specifically saying, oh, you shouldn't, that's not very ladylike and you shouldn't be swearing on TV. And Colin and Neil and Tim all chimed in and said, if you rewatch that, all of us said fuck, including Diona, but you decided to tweet her, not any of us. And it was just an example of that um, misogyny still when you, when you watch a female in a place of comedy that, what are they and are they not entitled to say or talk about in comparison to the men that are sat beside them and the things that are so much more like heightened when you're a woman that you are and aren't, aren't allowed to talk about, you know? Uh, so as you say, yeah, it is, you do feel like that if something goes well or goes wrong for a female on stage, it's like you, you've got, you've got the, whole, the whole gender on your shoulders rather than just your, your own career. It's gone up shit creek. It's everyone's. <laughs> yeah, it is, and all of and all of womanhood. We've taken them all down with us, and it's um it's ironic as well, isn't it? Because working as we do on the circuit as writers as broadcasters, it, for us it seems like a non-event because there are so many incredible women around us day in day out. So we're not thinking on the inside. Oh, this is a real big deal. I'm a, I I I, for, I don't forget I'm a woman, but I'm not even thinking about that. And then it's when you get the feedback from the world, you're like, oh right, that is still a thing, is it? You do still need to take me down for my gender. Uh, 
you get it's a surprise in the times. I found recently going over to London and gigging there, like there's so many brilliant women in comedy working over there, and there's just so much, so many more less women working in comedy in in the north here. Like there's not that many, and I don't know. I feel like the comedy scene here is very inviting and very welcoming, and I've never genuinely, honestly, never felt like it's a boys' club. Albeit ninety nine percent of the comedians are men. But then going over to London, like I had, I, I used to like do a wee bit about being like, oh, you know. I'm a woman, it's probably going to be shite, but we'll just do the bit anyway on stage. And my agent was like, well, that actually won't work over here because if you look at every lineup, there's multiple women on on all of the, in all the clubs. And I loved that. I loved going to do a gig and there'd be like two or three other girls on because I am never, ever on a bill with other women here. It's usually just me and three guys or, you know, and it's so, so, so strange to, to gig with other women. So that's the only thing about the scene here is it's very welcome and it's, 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 it's frankly thriving at the minute but uh yeah it's like we just we just need for women to be able to feel welcomed I suppose because that must be the case I never felt that and I don't want to put the onus on a woman going well I don't have the confidence to it's like we need to create an environment where they they do have the confidence to yeah it is almost like a big split and I hadn't I haven't gigged um I've I've done some telly and broadcasting in um, Northern Ireland but I haven't gigged there but there is definitely here, you feel like on the circuit, there's some kind of old, I'm sure you'll have seen all this. There are some old school kind of clubs where you end up with people who've been going for like 30 years where it does feel a bit of a boys club. Um, and you do, I, I sometimes do feel uneasy in those environments, especially because I'm their age, but I've been going much less of a long time. So I wasn't with them at this when they were starting out, you know, in their twenties. But then I also, but then actually, usually it's just really lovely people who feel where it feels completely mixed, diverse, the sort of people you'd want to hang out with. But there's a bit of a time lag with that making it as far as telly, I think, still. I mean, I still think when, when people are like, there aren't that many funny women, people who aren't in comedy, you're like, no, really, they properly are in the clubs. They're just not all making yeah. it through yet. Yeah, they're not getting through because still, for some reason, even if you see a lineup, here you know if there is more than one woman on the bill it'll sell less than if there's one is that woman right? and like mostly guy 100, 100 even if the woman has really brilliant I, I, tv credentials high profile because i think here it's much more about profile less about gender well there isn't really that many high profile women here doing comedy is the thing right so you wouldn't really get a big you know like there, there would be in this in the south like obviously yeah. you have really well known in the south like John McNally and Alison Spittle and brilliant women do but they're not up the north gigging yes it's like two separate entities funny how politics works <laughs> yeah well it's working better than politics well po- arguably depends not that I want to cast the first stone in that regard at the moment but it's the um <laughs> in terms of the the stuff that you because you you were in the um, BBC New Comedy Awards final in 2021 yeah so a couple of years ago so when did you I mean I've been aware of you for your acting and you, are you, when did you get into comedy as a stand-up? Well, um, actually, I know you you would like you like to ask your guests about their namaste moment, and that that, that is mine. Um, my husband's a stand-up comedian, and I have been doing stand like sketch. I was in sketch groups for a few years, and was always and the parts that I was getting on TV started to just whittle into just comedy. It was like that sort of just became the genre that I excelled in and uh it must be four or five years ago my best friend asked me to be her maid of honor at her wedding and asked me to do a speech and my husband had been trying to encourage me to do stand-up and I just I couldn't I couldn't get the balls together I felt like I had a lot to lose because I'd been doing like tv and stuff and I was like ah if I'm shit I'm really shit you know so he had so anyway, so I did the speech, say ten minute speech at, at her wedding, and it went really well. And I made an effort to make it funny. And you know, afterwards, my husband was like, "That's stand up. That's it. That's you. You wrote jokes. People laugh. They were yours. They were original. They're about stuff you know. That's it." So I was like, "Jesus, maybe I should have a wee go with this then." And then so that that is where the stand up started. Then you know, a few months later, I I, I did my first gig then. And how long um, ago was that? Do you- it was November 2018. So it is really recent because so, I was thinking when I was looking at your and also, by the way, I don't know how you feel um, about 
when you're in a relationship with a comic and Sean's great and that must all I think I would find that I never let anyone I'm dating watch me do my stuff I mean obviously they can if it's on telly or something I'm not going to make them turn it off but I hate people in the venue I really do and I so I don't know how did that have an impact as well that you're in a relationship with a talented comic who's rooting for you but also is good did that make you feel more self-conscious or supported so I think yeah I would have like if I had to come off stage and he went you know what? You give it a go. I think we should let's try presenting. <laughs> let's get divorced. Like I think I would have. Yeah, I'd be like, oh shit, because I knew he wasn't gonna lie to me. And it's so funny because uh, for the for the first first years that we were together, I'd have been at all his gigs and I'd have been like at his friend shows, and I would have sat in the audience as if I knew anything. And I'd have, like if he was talking to the audience for too long, I'd have been like, how horrible am I? I'd have been there going like move on like do you know what I don't know what I was thinking as if I knew what I was talking about and I'd be like in the audience doing sign language to him he must have really fancied you to put up with that shit I tell you <laughs> well I was half raising his kids so that's there all we cared about child care it speaks <laughs> volumes <laughs> um so yeah I think it's weird it, it, it's because then we were just both always in that environment together I don't think I, I felt it strange for him to be there but I mean, I don't think he doesn't really give me feedback. Do you know what's worse though? Is like, uh, so obviously I had a big break from stand up as well during the pandemic. During the pandemic, it became much more like uh, it, it became much more common to do self tapes for auditions where you could just do your audition at home, for TV shows or whatever. Yeah, the worst. But Sean would be the person behind the camera who would like read in the other lines and you know like every now and then he'd be like mm, is that ever Ming and Maxon I don't know and I'd be like you stop giving me feedback you know or he'd be like I think that was a wee bit over the top maybe we could pull that back a bit and I was like no fuck you like stop giving me this is stop your giving me advice now in my in my world <laughs> yeah yes I was like when the shoe's on the other foot although his gigs I'd have been sat there in the audience going wind it up move on <laughs> I love the idea of you doing that it, you yeah, also think... don't realize how hard I used to work in behind the scenes in telly for years so I would watch stand-ups and I'd go to Edinburgh and you just don't know till you do it how little you know about what it is to do it because obviously all good comics make it look completely unplanned and effortless so they're just shooting the breeze and if they're good we're just going oh my god it's so easy to tell that story and we you just don't realize do you until you get on stage how much more there is to it did you because when I was looking I thought you must have started around them and I was thinking god a load of your stuff so getting the blame game becoming a comic becoming a biological mum loads of that has happened pretty much in a Venn diagram where it's overlapping with lockdown and COVID. So are you just like addicted to crisis? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Do you know what? Um, during the pandemic, I think everything really changed for me because um, I started getting commissions to write plays and I had never written plays before, like comedy plays. Um, but I think people were just like still trying to keep creatives working and still trying. And so I had written like three or four plays that I'd been commissioned to write over the course of the pandemic, which I think then just sort of put me in the shop window for other things. And then um, like I did, wrote a show called Bridesmaids of Northern Ireland that toured here last year. And it was massive, and wasn't it? It was in all ma- massive um, venues and yeah, huge. Yeah, it's, it's, it, we saw, we did 11,000 um, seats for it. And then unbelievable. it's now doing like 70 plus dates in the UK from this July. So it's going to tour for five months in UK, Scot- oh, Scotland, England, Wales and the South and stuff like that. Just like, I think just, it, you know yourself when one thing leads to, to another and you're sort of just pinching yourself going, I hope this doesn't all shit itself and I'll be left with no work soon. But yeah, and I think as well, having a child, and I, I don't know how you feel as well. I think when you get when you get pregnant, a woman in entertainment, and you have a baby, your first worry is that people will just forget you. So you've no choice but to go on TV eight days later. Well, if you, and the thing people don't realize, I wasn't, I wasn't a performer when I had my kids when they were little, but I was working in sort of boardrooms and stuff. And I remember equivalent of you getting the blame game getting a massive promotion in a massive global media company just when I'd had my first child. 
And they literally called me when I was on maternity leave and said, can you come back in three weeks and do this job? And the bit people don't realise, like with you in the blame game, if you don't do it, there's a vacancy that someone else will fill. So it's not like you say, I won't do it. Can you put it on pause? Some other bugger's got it and then you've not got the job. So it's literally like I've got to keep my own seat warm. And I don't think people realise. So it's not about us being blindly ambitious new mums who will like shove the baby in a back of a car while we do our job, although if we need to. But it's more that we're like, if we don't do this, we've lost our chance and we're giving that platform to another person and might not be a woman. Exactly. And especially with something like the blame game, that was such a specific opportunity there had been a woman who had taken that place before and I had just joined at a trial period the the series before and then this this, this year was like my first permanent series and then I was off having a baby and I was like ah oh, me and my womb what am I like and I just like it, it just I felt like if I, if I didn't if I pulled out then you know would they they would find if they would find another woman probably somewhere and I'd be like well there was only me and now there's two of us and I don't have that job because there's so few and far between here. Actually, I gave birth on Easter Sunday and on the Tuesday, two days later, the producer of the Blame Game texted me and said, because we record on the Thursday, said, Joanne McNally is supposed to be on this week, uh, but she's sick, she's not well. Could you come in? And I was like, I had a baby two days ago. And they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So can you come in? And I said, no, I definitely can't this week. I would have planned to do it the following week. So, you know, at that stage, I had to say no. I was still wearing a nappy myself. I was like, no, I need I need another week. Hey, at my age, you'll be wearing one again, but that's a story for another conversation. Namaste, motherfuckers. It, it is still fair to say that, um, like, Sean, if he'd been offered that work, the same schedule as you, if he'd been offered that work that week, he would have been fine to do it. So you you two as a couple have had a baby. And that's not saying he's a wanker, by the way. This is about gender, yeah. not about your husband. But that is the way it is, right? Yeah. So a man, a man, <laughs> that's not for me to say, but a man <laughs> can do, can, can, can still have that can still do that and it still isn't really a, a thing that's thought about as much and and also you never get the question you never hear a man being asked where's the baby if they're working I bet you get the whole time well, who's got the baby it's like well I'm not the only I'm not the only parent maybe the other parents got the not baby the only, exactly yeah it's like that I bloody hate when people say that their husband or the father of the kids is ba oh, babysitting babysitting that's when you get a gun out and you like, shoot shut up them, shoot the person who says that yeah paid position that is not or if you've got a niece or nephew you don't pay them but whatever but like that's not your fucking husband or your partner or the dad isn't or the official you know guardian can't babysit that doesn't work it's mutual exclusive yeah like, and also people who get credit today. for doing the school run when men get credit oh we did the school run on tuesday it's like oh great you know who did it who did it the other four days my husband and i and our almost two-year-old daughter went for a spa day a few weeks ago because that's how we roll very and sophisticated brought the brat and we went and she was a dream she was great she loves getting under the pool and we went so we were walking down to the spa from our hotel rooms in our robes and our wee slippers and she was so cute she had a wee tiny wee robe and slippers on her oh. they were walking a little bit ahead of me because i'm the size of a semi-detached house at the moment and i was like waddling behind and I could see, you know, like pe people, like mainly, mainly women, maybe looking at them going, what a great dad. Like, isn't that so cute? Like, he's got his wee girl with them. They're walking down to the spa. How adorable. And I could just see them, like, their hearts melting. And I thought, do you see if I was holding her hand with this baby bump, waddling down to the spa, holding her hand, and a man seeing me, he would go, Jesus, avoid that at all costs. Well, there's some you know material I mean? in that he for wouldn't sure, dear. <laughs> there's there definitely he is. Wouldn't be it. He would. He wouldn't be looking at me, going, "Oh, can I have your number?" He'd be like, "You've got fucking issues and baggage. Get away from me." <laughs> Not the same. My husband texts me today from upstairs, by the way, because we don't like to communicate face to face. But he texts me today, and he was like, "Um, are you emceeing this gig on May twenty eighth? A gig that we're organising." And I went, well, I'm due a baby that day, so possibly not. And he wrote back saying, lazy. <laughs> <laughs> He's a keeper. Come on. <laughs> He's like, you're such an asshole. It's all one, you should know that's when our baby's arriving. And two, do it yourself. 
Bing, Maybe he Bing, just was relying on babies being late. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's like, it's bound to be five days late. Was the um? You've talked quite a bit about IVF, having IVF for your little. Your little one is winter. Your two year old. Winter, yeah, yeah. And, and this baby is also through IVF. Yes, I was going to ask about that. So this baby's also IVF, and you've had and you've done. It's it's been brilliant. I think um, what you've done in terms of men and women kind of wanting to talk about it based on you because it sometimes is a bit of a sensitive issue particularly for men isn't it it's like they did something wrong that IVF was needed there's a bit of a sometimes a bit of a macho response where you feel like it's it's actually not a personal criticism and it might be nothing to do with you and your and your little swimmers might be something else so how, how have you found the whole IVF thing and also being a public face of it yeah I think what I have found is that women feel shame when they can't conceive naturally they feel shame they feel like oh my body's designed to hoard a baby and grow a baby and they feel shame like they aren't fulfilling their feminine duty or whatever it is men feel embarrassed because it's a it's about their sperm and they're usually like my sperm's fucking brilliant my sperm's class and they're so embarrassed when they're like i've got shit sperm and it's so silly it's like that's the very clear separate reactions to infertility and I find talking about it on stage and making it fun I feel like you can talk about almost anything in a comedic way I think there's value added to it when you've lived that experience and uh, people relate to that a bit more and since I started talking about it on stage I get contacted constantly all the time people who are going through the same process and maybe we're in the audience and poking their partner because they they haven't really spoken about it themselves publicly to, to family members or, or friends. And so they sort of can laugh along to the things that I'm saying because they have lived the same experience. Um, so I found it... I remember going... We did the Czech Republic to do our IVF and I remember the first time flight... And even going away, we didn't have a lot of money at the time and it meant that it was cheaper, but they also had great um, success rates. And I think... Uh, we thought we might have a wee holiday out of it, but like that's, uh, we were very naive. <laughs> I was it's not the most fun process, time. is it, IVF? No, I was bad, but I had a thing called OHSS, which is when like your ovaries swelled like the size of a watermelon, and I was like, I couldn't even stand. So it was in bed for like 10 days. When and I was in there, rising and I was, like, agony, presumably. So oh, agony, but it was like 33 degrees outside, and I was like, ah, I'm going to go enjoy this. But I was in my bed. And I remember like, writing notes on my phone about everything that happened and trying to make them funny because I was like I've spent about 10 grand so far I didn't need to make some of this money back <laughs> I'm gonna put it in a show <laughs> and um on top of talking about it through stand-up I've also written a one-woman show a dark comedy called sunny side up that's all about the fertility journey that will play for a month in the lyric theater Belf lyric theater in Belfast next year so I'm really excited about that um, didn't you do a BBC short every, about oh, it as well? Oh, you did. You did a BBC short on the, didn't you? But oh, that was about yeah, step, that, yeah, being a stepmom who couldn't, just, con yeah, who couldn't conceive without IVF. Yeah, I wonder where I came up with that idea. Very original concept. <laughs> I'm just dying out on it. <laughs> yeah, um, and it was funny because I couldn't actually play. I'd written the part for myself for the BBC short, but I couldn't play the part because I was heavily pregnant at the time, and I was like, does it make sense? This character to be striving to be a mum and trying to and go through the IVF process whilst eight months pregnant. So I'll maybe I'll maybe get another actress to play that part. Yeah, Stanislavski would roll in his grave at the idea of you doing it heavily pregnant. And do you um because you're writing, <laughs> you're, you're obviously a very uh, I think comedians seem to come from one of two angles. Either they're really great performers who then fall into stand up because they're just great on stage or people who are really great writers and then they sort of transfer into stand up because they they can write the material. And I'm always an absolute awe of the latter category because I find writing the hardest thing, but it sounds like you're the fact that you'd be there swollen ovaries, sweating, um, you know, lying there, not knowing if this is, whole thing is going to turn into a baby or not and still going, right, I'll just write some gags on my phone. That's a particular kind of person who could do that. Yeah, I'm not I saying you're insane by the way. I'm, I'm, I'm applauding this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm a psychopath. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think yeah, I was just like, I'm, I, I've got to, I've got to turn this into something somehow. I think you'll know this yourself too. You just, you're all, always thinking of like, 
how can this how can I make this into something that's beneficial? You know, even when it's the shit things, you're like, right, how can I benefit from this rather than this just being a shit time? And I genuinely never and I know and this is not to <clears throat> minimize the the in, like infertility or the IVF process, but I didn't really struggle with it mentally. I really didn't. But I know so many people that have and do. And so I was like, okay, I need to turn this into something positive. And I, you know, I, I was in a I was in an okay place when I was writing the jokes about it. I wasn't really, really struggling. I, I think genuinely the hardest part for me going through IVF was the day I found out I was pregnant because immediately I was filled with such deep guilt because I had connected with so many other people on online forums who were going through the process of IVF. And I was like, oh, shit. I don't know why I'm ever going to say to those people that I'm pregnant because I felt like I had swapped camps. Like survivor's guilt. I was no longer... Yeah, exactly. It was survivor's guilt. I was like, why did I... And I remember the first time I went to do IVF, there was a lady I connected with online we'd never met in person. And she was doing IVF. She was um, putting her last embryo in the day I was putting my first embryo in. And I genuinely just wanted it to work for her before me. Because I was like, this is her last chance. I've got 10 of them. And I was like, I just hope. I just, if, I, I remember thinking, if it's me or her, I want it to be her. Because I have loads more goals. She doesn't. And she got pregnant. And I didn't, but she got pregnant that time, which was great. It's funny, that thing of, um, you've obviously been immersed in it because it's been your world from your first child to now your second. But you don't realise, I don't, I didn't realise, you spend all your life trying not to get pregnant, right? You've probably said, I haven't seen your material oh about this, but you probably touched That's it. That's what I talk about. Oh, yeah. Sure you yeah, and you're like, and you spend your whole time going, well, like, and then you're like, I fucking want to get <laughs> pregnant now and I can't. And then you realise when you actually do, I didn't really know any I had my kids quite young and I I didn't know many pregnant women or people who'd actually in a grown-up way said they'd have a kid I knew people who'd yeah. been careless and, and you know careless that sounds judgmental but hadn't planned it I also didn't plan my first one but I didn't realize how many people are trying to have babies and how few people's babies just arrived when they wanted it's really rare that people just yeah. are like right let's have a baby and it works I had no idea I just thought the well, reason the we're all getting, about- yeah getting so freaked out about contraception is it's, it happens like that you just look at a guy funny in a pub and you're pregnant yes and that's i went to a catholic secondary school and that's what they told us yeah. they were like if you're in sniffing distance of a term you'll get pregnant yeah and i was like and, then and especially I went, sniffing like, distance is the last position where you're going to get pregnant <laughs> exactly <laughs> jesus like yeah that's what that's a great contraceptive is just doing it that way <laughs> there you go and men will tell you that they'll be like just do this it's great for you it's yeah, great yeah, yeah, they're yeah. so considerate aren't they like that Remember there was that thing, I don't know if it's true, where they'd be like, a mouthful of sperm has 50 grams of protein or something like that. Yeah, there was a lot of blokes Maybe that I've come made. together. That predated Andrew Tate. I think that was the last toxic male <laughs> fakery online. Yeah. <laughs> but do you think yeah, now, because that, it is that thing, isn't it? And you don't realise that there's so much competitiveness about when you get pregnant, how you get pregnant, then with babies and kids and who's raising them how. And it's uh, when I am, um, not that I'm comparing human children to dogs, but when I got my puppy last year and everybody had an opinion about the fucking dog and I was like I remember what this was like with kids like what your kid's wearing can your kid write the word whatever and and I was like I remember this judgment and I was it was it really reminded because my kids are in their 20s now but it really reminded me of little kids and what it's like raising them I think the most competitive thing in the first year or two is like how long is your child sleeping at night does your child sleep through and you're like like fuck's sake like, just know I mean, that all the my... people whose kids are sleeping are lying that's all you need yeah <laughs> they're horrible or they're, liars they're drugging them or doing something like my mom used to tell me about this thing called doze all that she used to give us years ago from the chemist and it was like a, a drug major of course it made your sleep it's called fucking doze all and major child dozy and we all took it and she's like it was perfectly fine but okay I think they made it illegal now. And I was like, well, I think so, because you're drugging your child every night. No wonder we slept through the night from four weeks old. We were all on we were all off our tits. <laughs> I think I'd like some of that if it's still available, never mind for the children. And do you um in, in terms of all the stuff you're doing, and and again, this is I'm always really wary of asking this question to a woman 
because would I be asking Sean, how are you fitting it all in? You've got four kids, one on the way. How are you doing it all? So it isn't just a woman's domain to be asked to do this. But you, ha- you have done one. Your, your career trajectory in the last five years, not that you weren't successful before, but it has been really steep and it's carrying on up. And I hear what you say about being aware of our time in the sun because we do get time in the shade when we're not expecting it. So I, I understand that you're sort of, checking your privilege and not wanting to be blase about it, which is a, a lovely quality to have, but it is going really well for you. And does it, how does it feel on the inside of that? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I still have loads of, you know, bigger ambitions and things that I want to do. And I think on a, yeah, on a small scale level for, for me right now, things are going really well and, and I'm, I'm really, really busy. And I've just found a great balance and just as I found that great balance of like a few days a week, my daughter's in childcare and I can write and then, you know, I can go out and gig in the evenings because she's she goes to bed really easily and really early and she's she's brilliant like that. And now I've decided to have another child. I'm like, ah, oh, jeez, now I have to like do all that again. But yeah, I, I think, I mean, I don't know, people do way more important things than I do and work way longer. Shit. They do like, not. You know, don't listen to those doctors, neuroscientists, engineers. Are they talking shit? Yeah, stem cell researchers it's bullshit it's what you and i do that matters we're doing yeah can they make someone laugh whilst they're you know i know doing brain surgery no if they got a blowjob gag i don't think so don't think so either can they can they turn ivf into something funny can they exactly (laughs) exactly and because with the um and and with IVF, I guess IVF, I guess you didn't know either. You just don't know if it's going to take ages, do you? So I guess you're not. I know you don't with any way of conceiving, but I guess you're not knowing. Are we going to be trying to do this for the next three years, or is it going to hit pretty quickly? So again, you don't know if you can have a small age gap or not. Our process from the very beginning, from whenever we started to we had winter, was about six, six or seven years, um, and then we were so lucky that this this whenever we went back this time to do. Uh, IVF for this baby that it worked straight away so funny the different approach though it's like first and second child syndrome like my the first whenever we put winter in like every time we went to the Czech Republic to do IVF Sean would come with me and it would, we would like it'd be all very like holistic and all this and we would do all the things that like were superstitious like after you do IVF after you put an embryo when you have an embryo transfer it's one of the superstitions that you're supposed to go to McDonald's now, I don't know if McDonald's are the people that have created this superstition so that they get your business, but you're supposed to go to McDonald's. Of all the places. McDonald's chips. And that's like, like I don't know why. I don't know what's in McDonald's chips that make an embryo go. There's yeah, no potato, that's for sure. About. <laughs> yeah, there's none. But this time, I went and did it myself. I went to the Czech Republic on my own because my daughter's passport hadn't arrived in time and I didn't want to leave her with anyone. So I was like, to Sean you stay here and I flew to the Czech Republic and did the process by myself and the day of the embryo transfer I told to Sean I'll video call you you can watch from the top end not from the fanny end you don't need to know you can be up you can, we'll just you can just watch the room and with the time difference he got the time wrong and I rang him and he didn't answer <laughs> and then I he's just, not good on diaries and dates and times is he I'm picking this up no, no, he doesn't. He didn't know the day it was going in. He doesn't know the day it's coming out. He's very absent for this baby. Yeah. It's very, um, it's very futuristic, isn't it? You just doing this all on your own. You're like, I'm having a baby. I'm going to go over, sort this out on my own, come back. The man's nowhere near. He's done his bit. The, this is how it's going to be for us all in the future. They won't even be on Zoom because they well, won't be. Well, I mean, no, that's it. And like people say, like, like some men are like sperm donors for them, and. We won't even need that. There was research recently, and now this is the opposite of what I'm trying to say, but they've they got two male mice to procreate with two sperm. Hold on, I'm trying to work this out. So I know, two, I haven't. So where did two the Two male go? mice were able to have a, make a baby. Were they? That is the opposite, isn't it? Because that's empowering men to not need women. And we're, really, we're, more, we're, more go- exactly, we're more going the other way with this. It's like, wow, pregnant male mice. Have yeah, are. we need the opposite. <laughs> Too. We don't yeah. want men going fucking Imagine each other and getting pregnant. They don't need us. Fuck. <laughs> Although I would like them to all go through menopause so and dumb. periods. <laughs> oh my god! Absolutely, they've no idea. They get away with. They get away with everything scot free. And I am not. I'm not like man bashing or anything. But like, they've not had to have periods. They don't have to be pregnant. They don't have to breastfeed. They don't have to give birth. They don't have to have, have to have menopause. 
they're just assholes. But that's why we're so much better comedians because we have the material to draw on. So <laughs> that's yeah, why women are that's funny. True. That's true. Have you got some? Um, I know what, you. What, what do you have? A, you have a? Do you have two? Did you two? Say? Yeah, I've got a twenty-five-year-old boy and a twenty-two-year-old girl. Because they say the most important thing you can do right now is raise a boy. Yes. Because you can raise him to be like the next generation can, uh, you know, can be a completely different generation than what we've lived in and, you know, our older people have lived in. That's like one of the most important, because I'm also having a boy now. Oh, you are. So the pressure's on now. You've got to spit. I did say a few times to my son, I would say over the years, if he was really pissing me off about something he wouldn't do domestically or he was being really emotionally unintelligent, which to be fair was rare. He's pretty emotionally sensitive kid, but he would... And I would say, I am not spitting a boy into the world who behaves like some of the men I've dated. You are going to know how to do the shit that I yeah. wish men that I had. I remember once levelling something at him and he'd just been a dick. And I sent him a text saying, I didn't raise you as a feminist to do this, that and the other. And he sent me this incredible text that I have somewhere that was just a beautifully written. He was like, if there's one thing you cannot level against me, it's that I am not a feminist. I am a feminist because you brought me up to be one. And you can say I'm lazy and I'm rude, and I'm, but I am not doing this. And we've diminishing women. I was so proud. I was still like, could you unload the dishwasher? But I liked the <laughs> I liked the standpoint from which it came. So yeah, mine's my son's an autistic yeah. zookeeper. So I feel I've given a lot to the world. Yeah. Oh my God, that's phenomenal. That's a rich gift, right? Oh, absolutely. That's more than what we could have hoped from one person. There you go. And it's also a rich gift comedically. So if you want to try and forge yours into something, I think you could do worse than that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and that's the thing when they're waiting, you're like, oh, what will they do? Who will they be? Like, that's, you can, you can make them into anything. I could, I just think it's so crazy. What a, what a like blank canvas they are at the beginning that you can just form them to be anybody. Like, nobody's born horrible or nobody's born you know you make you make and not that I'm going to make my kids horrible although it might be funny but like you know you can make them into anything don't you think Boris Johnson was born horrible I think he probably was don't you reckon or he became horrible quickly I think he had the exact same hair from the day the day he was born though I think the day that man came out he had that mullet and that's been like that ever since yeah he came out with that hair neck in cheese and wine and lying like a lying little baby wearing like do you know one of those just collar and ties but like it doesn't have the shirt like he yes. just had that on <laughs> yeah where most babies would have had a bib that was that was his umbilical cord just a tie <laughs> <laughs> and do you um you've got you had bridesmaids of northern ireland which is now it what's it going to be is it still called obviously it's still called bridesmaids of northern ireland no, when it's, it's here it's no bridesmaids of britain it's being Brides- written okay. for an english audience it's okay. not uh because so, because obviously when I wrote it for here there's local jokes to be written for an English audience so you've got that coming here and you've got am I right in thinking you've got a new show over there Hendu is that right yes so the Hendu is actually the sequel to Bridesmaids which I know you'd think the Hendu should come first but it's a different character's Hendu and that's that's like this autumn and then uh Sunny Side Up, which is the IVF show, will be out next year, which is probably the one I'm most excited about because I've also opened my own production company, so I'm producing that one myself. I saw that. That's Cheesy Grin Productions with Sean. Yes, with that bastard. He's always hanging around somewhere, uh, isn't he? He does. He's getting his little claws yeah. into everything, isn't he? And do you, I, as, as someone from Please the other side involved, of the yeah. fence, I'm very glad you're in the production side because money-wise, that is, as we know, the only way you start to make money while you sleep is to do it yourself because otherwise yeah. every bugger is taking a cut of everything and you're the brains behind it and get very little. And like, just, and being, and, and honestly, like after we did Bridesmaids, that was a commission that I'd had and, um, I didn't produce it and it was the one of the theatre owners that came to me and was like would you not produce your own show as well because obviously you're going to make seven times the money and I was like that is definitely what I'm going to do so uh yeah we opened our own production company and we're hoping well we've done a show we've done one show already we did a show at Christmas and it went really well so we're just gonna yeah keep on keeping on and then we're gonna retire to I don't know on a cruise we went on a cruise for our honeymoon, which I know people think is for old people, but it was like, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my entire life. I need to keep going on cruises. Really? So I'm going to retire to a cruise ship. 
I'm seeing God, someone never been at the moment cruise? who's very big on the idea of um, cruise ships, but I'm like, as someone who's just turned 54, that becomes less ironic and more tragic. So I'm like, I don't know if we should be talking about cruise ships. I feel like, it, give me another 20 years. I feel you can get away with it and make it sort of young and beautiful and ironic. And if I do it, it's just like, yeah, you're 54, you're on a cruise ship. Of course you're on a cruise ship. Well, exactly. How would you not be on a cruise ship? That would be more yeah. of a surprise. So you're and as on our like, honeymoon. Yeah. On our honeymoon, on on the we went to the Caribbean on a cruise, and um, my husband we were in like a jazz wasn't a jazz bar piano bar on the ship. They have like obviously like loads of bars. My husband went over to the pianist and said, "Could he play our wedding song, which was um, a song called In My Life' by the Beatles?" And the guy started playing our wedding song, and I was like, "Oh, the fee requested our wedding song. That's lovely." And then the man got on the microphone and asked us to come up to the dance floor. And me and Sean had to bloody dance for the whole song on our own in the middle of this massive ship bar with about 300 people looking at us. All of whom you're like going to keep seeing for again. the next however many days because it's a captive audience, isn't it? Yeah, I was like, I want to jump overboard. This is horrific. That, you see, that is a reason for me not to ever go. Because have you ever done the cruise ship gigs or has Sean? I've never wanted to do them. Sean has. I haven't. Sean did them and said that was the worst thing in the world. He got off in Frankfurt and flew home. Oh, early. He wasn't meant to get off. <clears throat> nope. He he had done a fish and he was and also I think that the expectation was that he would tell stories and jokes that people already knew. Like do you know that old school three years ago comedy would have been more like the magic circle. People would have shared stories and shared jokes, and people would be standing at the side of the stage trying to get on first so they could do all the best stuff because it was like a shared community of comedy. Whereas that's not the case now. Everything you do is obviously completely original on stage, or we hope so. And he was on the cruise ships, and I think they were like, Would you not tell some, you know, Michael McIntyre stories and stuff? And he was like, That's not how it works now. And uh, they were like, Well, our other comedians that come on, just tell jokes that we already know. And I think they're maybe of the older like group of older generation of comedians who who still do that who did it years ago when it was perfectly acceptable so he was like i gotta get off this ship and he got off in i think it was frankfurt no it wasn't frankfurt hold on somewhere in the netherlands flew home wow <laughs> he was like bye not doing that it makes yeah. me think we should all be doing the cruise ships. we'll just get jimmy cars the naked jape and just read out from it we'll credit it we won't set hours we just read aloud it sounds like that's all they want <laughs> what the fuck are we doing that's, difficult material yeah. for I, yeah, I have heard so many horror stories from some, some of my favourite comics mates. Have got, have, I mean, Paul McCaffrey makes me really yeah. laugh when he talks about cruise ships and because he's such a fantastic comedian and so ill-suited temperamentally. He's not ill-suited as an act. He's amazing, but just not the temperament to be stuck on. Tolerate. He, he does not suffer fools gladly. Um, so it always makes me laugh. Um, and Bobby Davro once told me about why he got banned from a certain uh, cruise ship for um, uh, something that went wrong with a woman. He got up on the stage and her whole kind of dress, he was sort of dancing with her and her dress came open and she thought it was really funny, but her husband did not. Think, he wasn't doing an, a, a Me Too thing. It really was a sort of accident yeah, yeah, on the stage. Accident. It was more of a wardrobe malfunction like Judy Finnegan. Um, but yeah, it, so I, I love a good story about people dying on their ass on a cruise ship. I live for yeah. them actually, so I'm glad. And to, then yeah, you have to spend the rest of the time. You have to go have your breakfast with them the next That's day. That's what I love. Right? You die, and and that thing. Some gigs that are bad enough, you don't even want to see people on the way to the car park, and you're going to be queuing for the you know Frankfurter sausages in the morning. I don't know. Why I said Frankfurters. I think because you got me thinking of Frankfurt. Yeah, yeah. I don't suppose they have Frankfurters at the buffet, do they? Well, that tends to be the type of sausage you find at a buffet. I'm always really disappointed. You know, when you go to a hotel, a watery sausage. Have breakfast. Be the proper. Where's your big pork sausages? Why have I got this? I don't even know what part of the. I don't know what animal a Frankfurter comes from. Probably no. a pig. I think it's probably a pig. Shit. But anything that's in water in a tin doesn't scream tasty sausage yeah. to me. There's been a lot of tasty sausage talk it's on this. Microwave. Uh. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> we should also just mention your podcast. I want to ask you the three questions, one of which you've semi-answered, but um, definitely should give a shout out to your podcast, Remember When. Are you still going to be doing that or are you going to take a little breather from that? Listen to me, Patrick. Are you going to take a little breather from that when you have the baby? <laughs> I'm going to still do it. I'm going to bank up enough episodes to give myself a few weeks off and then just take it from there. But yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the next this week's guest I have on is um, Owen Quigg, who 
I don't know if you remember, he was he's from County Derry, but he was on the X Factor. He came like second I on do the X remember. Factor of the year. That I do, yes. JLS one. Oh, that's going to yes. be a good one. Because yours Alexander. is about pop yes, culture so he, history, isn't it? The show is about picking a moment. Yeah, yeah. It's generally just like I like, heard a chat and then there's a, there's a, just to make the name of the podcast make sense, I make them give me a remember when moment about something. Hey, listen, speaking to, preaching Strangely to the choir. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Strangely enough, right? I have had like loads of great guests on and, you know, usually in a comedic sense. And, you know, I ask people, what's your remember when moment? What's your nostalgic moment that had some sort of something happened in pop culture history that's had some sort of effect on you and your guests be like, oh, whenever we had like the Tamagotchi era or when Jerry left the Spice Girls or lots of like these fun things. I've had three boxers on my podcast and every single one has said 9-11. That's interesting. Why is that funny? That is not something to drop into a comedy podcast. Yeah, they didn't really read the brief. No, did they? All, they, yeah. How do we get out of this? Yeah. No, all, all of them. There's like, why are all the Irish boxers obsessed with 9 11? Well, there's a thesis so, for somebody so to do at uni. Well, we'll put a link to that. <laughs> um, if it, I don't know how yours is, but with this podcast, we, we craft it and we work so hard on it. And then if ever we bang out a quick best of, because I haven't managed to do a podcast that week, that one will do phenomenal numbers. I'm like, great. I'm really glad I'm trying to create original content every week. And then some random thing we do to <laughs> tie in with a world event. It was like, I love that. It's like, that wasn't even it. Namaste, motherfuckers. So what would, you might have already answered it, your namaste motherfucking life-changing moment. You talked about getting into stand-up. Is there anything you would want to add to that? It's definitely that moment. I feel like that's when I realised that, uh, so when I when I, when I I was a maid of honour and did a speech, that I think that I realised that I absolutely can. I think until that moment, I was an actress and in a comedy sketch script over the years, but I had never written any of the material. And so it was the first time I went, I can write something that they will also laugh at. I didn't have to just deliver somebody else's writing. So that was the real moment where I went, oh, I could, I can subsidize my own performance. I can write my own stuff and, and maybe it'll work. So it has led into a complete career U-turn for me. You know, no, hold on. A U-turn brings you back to where you started. A pivot. Thinking. I think they're calling it a pivot. A 180. Yeah. Yeah. Um, out of uh, not out of, but I, I I'm still I'm still an actress, but moving way more into uh, comedy that then led to the blame game and and many other opportunities. So I think that's funny though because after that day at that wedding with my best friend who was being married, we actually fell out after that wedding for like two years. <laughs> Well, they say friends was... are for a reason, for a season, or for life, and that friend was for a reason. What is your favorite joke? Do you know what I? As a one-liner, one of my husband's one-liners that I really love is, uh, where's the best place to hide in a hospital? I see you. Excellent. Wow. And also but somebody... But I also, on a... I was going to say how lovely as well. Oh, that you're... Um... What a generous woman you are giving your husband the favourite jokes. But you're... Come on. He's done well with you. Let's be clear. But but also, uh, one of my favourite bits is by Ashling B. And she talks about how men are really intimidated by funny women. And she does this whole bit about, you know, oh, yes, because obviously when a, when a man's walking home through a dark alley late at night on his own, he was absolutely terrified of a woman jumping out of his dark corner and telling you a joke. And I just think it's brilliant. <laughs> I've it, seen her do it. She's like, we're afraid of the fact that you can kill us with your bare yeah. hands, but you're afraid that we might tell you a joke and I just think it's so smart so good so good and I absolutely love her if we can find a link to that I'll put it in the show notes that little bit of her stand up um and yeah. what life advice would you give do you want to anybody listening do you know what I was asked this recently and I'm always like oh but like I, I don't really feel like somebody should give advice however if I was to give advice to my, my younger self this suppose it's the same thing as giving advice to other people you're younger than me which is a lot of people um would be if you think it's funny, say it. Because there's many, many times I've regretted. And I know that's quite niche and quite just for people who like, you know, work in comedy or want to be funny in the crowd. But I remember even being a teenager and growing up and, you know, the boys were the people who were allowed to be funny in a group of friends and the girls were encouraged to be the spectators of their funniness. And I hated that. And then throughout my early 20s, when I was in sketch groups, I didn't write the sketches because I hadn't the confidence to say the funny idea that I had 
And many times I would intercept with like a an add-on and, and then somebody else would say it later and it'd be a guy and it would get in and I'd be like, ah, I should have had more, should have I should have really had more confidence to say that louder. And so that, I just think if you think it's funny, say it. And if people don't laugh, then find another audience. That was Diana Doherty. And we've put links to Diana's podcast, the Bridesmaids of Britain tour, and all the other good stuff we talked about in the show notes. And that is it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. Please do keep rating, reviewing, and recommending the podcast. We love it when you give us shiny stars as well, especially five of them. Hint, hint. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday as always, but this time with a little twist because I will be sunning myself abroad, well, as much as gingers can do that, for my daughter's birthday. So we are taking the opportunity to give me a week off and to dive into the archive with the one, the only, Mr. Sean Walsh. There's not a day that has ever gone by where I've not thought about it. Namaste Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions, with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.